Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. This is Let's Talk Tribe, the official Let's Go Tribe podcast, episode 75, recorded on July 17th, 2017. I am your host, Matt Lyons, and on this week's episode, we're going to take a look at some trade deadline goodness, we'll look ahead to the second half, we'll preview the upcoming series against the San Francisco Giants, and we'll discuss Abraham Amante's massive home run that he hit against the A's last night. Uh, before we get into all that, I want to thank everybody listening live now on Facebook, or wherever or whenever you may be tuning in. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you listen uh, to your favorite podcast, and consider leaving a review. Joining me for all that and more, as always, is Jason Lucard. Jason, how you doing? Uh, I'm itchy. I think when I was in Michigan the week before last, climbing up like a 300-foot cliff, I think unbeknownst to me at the time, I went through like some poison oak or poison ivy or something, and I didn't notice anything for like three or four days, and then like last Tuesday or Wednesday, started to get bumps and rash, and it's pretty crummy. I feel like I have the chicken pox again. Oh, that's, I, I, it's probably really bad, but I'm an adult and I've never had chicken pox yet. So I don't know exactly what that feels like, and hopefully I won't at this point. <laughs> but I'm sorry you feel itchy, Jason. I, yeah, I feel it's very no bad. Being itchy sucks. The scratching, it makes it worse. <laughs> That's the real problem. If I could just make it feel better by scratching it and not increase the damage. But instead, so I need like an oatmeal bath and some oven mitts. <laughs> now, I swear we'll talk about baseball in a minute, but there's a very important thing that you said there, which is apparently means that you're on my wife's side of an argument. But I always say you itch when something itches. Is that wrong? She always says scratch, and I thought she was a weird one. Like, if something itches, you itch it to make it feel better, right? No, I, I think the itch... That's crap. The itch is like the sensation you have to scratch. It, and I, I believe I'm on your, your wife's, the registered nurse side on this medical matter. <laughs> she doesn't know anything about that. What are you talking about? Uh, so, yeah, your, your itchiness, it might have distracted you from um, some pretty bad baseball. I don't know how, how bad it would have to be, but the Indians, uh, they weren't very great over the last... Well, I guess three games since the All-Star break. We've got a couple questions um, that were basically the same thing, different wording. But at Farrell Carsons, he wants to know, are we smashing the panic button yet? And at Sports with Nate, he said, after what game number is it okay to cry after a loss asking for a friend? First of all, you cry after every loss. That's that's just automatic what you do. Um, I don't know about crying, but I've stared at screens a few times. Too. It's, just, it's just nice to have a good cry at <laughs> the end of a ball game win or lose. You just need a good cry. Just Just get it out. Either you cry from happiness or cry in the shower after the World Series if you're Jason Lucart in the 1990s. Yeah, but what what game number is it okay to cry after? I guess the the other answer would be it's okay to cry after Game Seven. Uh, Ouch! That's when I do my cry. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're basically the same question. I guess what what game number do you cry and what game number do you hit the panic button? Um, are you panicking, Jason, about the second no, half? The, they're still in first place. Uh, I'm not spoiled enough as a baseball fan to panic about a first-place team. The record is not what I hoped it would be. It's not what I thought they would be. Uh, but the rest of the division continues to be mediocre. 
uh, yeah, I mean, it's frustrating, but panic, no. I'm not even really, I'm, I, like, and this is a weird thing for me to say. I've said before, I tend to be a sports pessimist, but I'm still not, like, concerned about winning the division. I just can't picture any other team in the American League Central being division champions this year. Yeah, I don't think that exactly is a bunch of confidence, but I, I, I also think the Indians can beat an awful division because they're leading now, but they obviously wouldn't lead any other division. I think in a few, they'd be like third. But I feel kind of like a hypocrite because I spent all of the winter laughing at Cavs fans who were getting worried about uh, the Cavs who were not winning every single game. But now that it's midseason for the Indians, I'm I'm not worried. I'm not panicking. Maybe getting a little bit shakier because we've been saying the same thing like the whole first half that it's going to turn around. They're going to be consistent and they're going to hit because they they have the good um, run differential. They're all they're all good players just slumping, but they haven't not slumped yet besides Jose Ramirez. And even he will probably cool down eventually. Um, it's just kind of scary how nobody's clicking ever. That's not a losing leadership thing. And if it is, that's pathetic. But there's something that has me a little more worried than last year. Uh, I, I, I'm sure a 14 game win streak would help that, but. And the one thing I didn't, I completely forgot about this, but the win streak didn't even happen until like August. It felt like it was so much earlier last year. So, I mean, obviously there's still plenty of time to have that. And then everybody forgets sure. about I this. Think it was, I want to say it was, I think it was earlier than that. Was it? Was it? Yeah. Cause, no, was Naquin's Hook'em Horns thing not during the win streak? Yeah, it wasn't during the win oh, streak. Okay, that was, the winning streak was earlier though, because the day, uh, July 1st, it was a Friday. That was the day of like the 19 inning game, and I think, wasn't that like the last win in the winning streak? I think it was close to it. Yeah, because I remember thinking that. I thought yeah. it was speaking of thing, wasn't it? The Indians have lost four games in a row for the first time since 2015. Awesome. Uh, so I suppose if you wanted to panic, you could point to the first four game losing streak in two years. Uh, but the division just sucks. I, <laughs> the Twins aren't going to win the division. There's just no way. Maybe so, the Royals will, and I'm blaming you if they do, because you were like, bring it on, Kansas City, whereas <laughs> I was like, bring it on, Detroit. But uh, I still think it's going to be the Indians. I mean, I think things are going to get better for the Indians, and even if they don't, I think if the Indians just keep up their current pace, which would put them at like 85, 86 wins, I think that's going to be enough to beat every other AL Central team. It won't be pretty. It won't inspire a lot of confidence going into the postseason, and you know, playing Boston or whoever in the first round. Uh, but I think 86 wins would be enough. Yeah, there's a bunch of comments right now, which are basically mostly from the same guy, but saying the Indians won't get to 95 wins. I, I think that's, yeah, I don't think they will, but they don't have to. <laughs> I mean, they can, yeah. like you said, win 86, 85 and still win the division. And as everybody always likes to say, the, the playoffs are crap too. They, what if they win like seven or eight going into the playoffs? So it won't matter how many they've won. If they're really good at the right time, I guess that's all that matters, but. But yes, I'm fully prepared to eat that Royals article if they do win, because I want them to hold on to all their players. I'm rooting for them for another exactly two weeks, and then I'm done. And then I want them to lose. But it looks like right now they're buying, which is probably an awful decision, and I am okay with it. Probably not going to work out if they buy, but it would be nice to have you to blame if it does work for them. <laughs> so if the Indians do get into the playoffs, say they win, well, I mean, they're probably going to, like we've said a million times. If they do get into it, are you confident with the rotation they have now? Because there were rumors that the Indians, I guess we can call them the lightest rumors possible, because it was Buster Olney. He just kind of hinted that the Indians could be one of six teams interested in Sonny Gray. But I mean, Olney's connected to a bunch of teams, I guess. It's more than just anybody saying anything, I guess. But 
Um, like at mostly baseball, they don't know. Sonny Gray, what would you guys feel comfortable giving up for him? Um, there's a big discussion about whether or not it's even worth it, if he's good enough. But like Andrew Miller, he's going to be around for – he's at least under control through 2019. Um, do you think there's any chance the Indians go after him to maybe not have another pitching situation like last year because of how bad Bauer's been and Tomlin? And... I think the Indians are definitely you know making phone calls, kicking tires. That's the thing about like the rumors thing. Like I, I never – I don't think Buster only is making anything up. I also just don't think, and I mean, obviously, mathematically, it would be impossible for anything to come of most rumors because if six teams are rumored for a team, at most one of them is going to get him, and five of the others are going to be like, oh, yeah, they're probably never even after him. So I'm sure the Indians, it would be stupid not to be talking to people and finding out what the asking price is. Uh, yeah, I think Sonny Gray would be immediately be the team's number three pitcher, uh, and I think he'd be a good number three pitcher. But I also think because he's still semi-young, I think he's 27, um, you know, he had a down year last year. But prior to last year, he'd been really good his entire career. He's looking pretty good again this year. I think the asking price would probably be steeper than the Indians are willing to pay. It's not going to be the same asking price as uh, Jose Quintana's price was. But the Cubs gave up their top two prospects. Uh, I don't think the Indians are going to give up either of their top two prospects for Sonny Gray, but I don't think they're going to get him without giving up that much talent. So uh, I think he's an interesting player. I could see, I think he'll be moved if the Brewers stick, you know, where they are for like another week and decide to go for it. They've got a great farm system. They seem like a team that's more likely to feel like, Hey, it's been a while since we've been in the postseason. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's push for it. I think people might be sleeping on the Indians' willingness to trade Tristan McKenzie maybe a little bit because he is only 19. He's still a ways away. Even even without the whole thing, how skinny he is, he's 19. He's a couple of years away. So I don't think they're completely against trading him. Um, and I mean, they have a couple other pitchers that are coming up. But even if they do, there's going to be a void between superstar starting pitchers. But they've drafted a bunch of um, college arms recently and high school arms. So I don't think... They're too set on keeping him if it would get somebody like Sonny Gray, but I don't think they'll ever trade Mejia. I think at this yeah. point they've they're not going to do it twice, as somebody in the comments said one time. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they're so glad Luke Roy vetoed that, but I can't see them yeah. doing that again. I think another intriguing one is Bobby Bradley, who they might trade him to like Bradley and McKenzie. That's two pretty legitimate prospects. That's not like a seven eight thing you're trading away. So maybe they're just throwing those two together and seeing who takes it. And I don't know if they're going to have to get Sonny Gray. Take. I mean, again, because like you said, Gray's under contract, you know, under team control for two more years. He'll get more expensive, but he's not going to get like blockbuster money. And that is, I mean, I know we hope the Indians' window of contention is just like a permanent thing that you know they've got a good front office. And the, but in terms of the current team, I feel like 2019 is sort of like the end of like the more confident window. Um, so you know, adding someone who'd be around for that same stretch makes sense. I just feel like someone else is going to be more willing to pay a little bit more. Uh, so I don't expect him to end up in Cleveland. Yeah, I think 2019 is a good timetable for the window, too. Although one of the big things about their window extending was like Bradley Zimmer being a hit. And we still don't know for sure, but he looks like he might be. And then Lindor hit Jose Ramirez all of a sudden hit. So maybe it'll go a little bit beyond 2019, but I don't think it'll be quite long enough where Tristan McKenzie is a lock to be in those plans for the current core. So maybe it is worth trading him away to get something for now and then having, I don't even know who would come up because <laughs> Thomas Pannone's kind of close, but he's still a ways away. And Brady Aiken's been weird way down in wherever he is, like low A right now. So 
there is a little bit of a void of starting pitchers in the system, but I don't think it's enough to shy the Indians away from Tristan McKenzie. I don't think everybody's saying there's no way they'll trade him is really that true. I think Mejia is probably the only thing close to untouchable right now because after McKenzie, it's just Bradley and a bunch of others who wouldn't really be a centerpiece for a trade anyway. So, yeah. And, and I do like the idea of getting Sonny Gray too because he is under control. I think he's better than his stats say this year, which if the Quintana trade told you anything, that's teams are evaluating based on real stats now. Do you think, like, I don't know. I don't know how far to go back with this. Like, eight or nine years ago, nine or ten years ago, whatever, like, Quintana would have been worth this much? Or would it have been, oh, he's done now because look at how bad he is this year? And maybe even wins and losses wouldn't have been big as big then, but just the fact that he had such a bad first half, would that have weighed heavily? Like, not as he wouldn't be worth as much as the Cubs got for him or Cubs sent away for him? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think eight or nine years ago, I think it's still recent enough that most front offices had enough of an analytical department to be looking past wins and losses and even ERA. Um, The other thing is, I think it'd be interesting to try to chart how much teams on average have valued their top prospects over the year, because I feel like that's something that's changed over time, too, is the kind of general willingness or unwillingness to part with prospects. I feel like, I don't know about eight or nine years ago, I certainly feel like there was a time, you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, when prospects were much more likely to be traded. Uh, And I don't know if that's just, you know, revenue discrepancy between the teams. Small market teams realize, like, we can't, you know, these are much more valuable assets than we're treating them as. But I think that'd be interesting to kind of dig into. I think we might still be a little bit in the Mark Shapiro mindset of trading, too. The fact that you never trade prospects for anything ever. And then Chris Antonetti might be willing to do it more like he did last year. Yeah, and maybe that, that's why it was a big thing last year when they had the, you know, the two deals at the deadline and, you know, the one for Miller and then the one for LaCroix that thankfully fell through. And it did feel like, whoa, this is a huge sort of change in approach from what we've gotten used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think last year showed they're willing to, but that doesn't mean you trade him just to trade him, which is why I think you're right about Mejia not going anywhere, especially with catcher being sort of a weakness on the major league level right now with Gomes and Perez both being incapable of hitting. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think McKenzie, Brad, I think anyone but Mejia is potentially on the table. Uh, but I, I don't expect a trade on the, the level of the Andrew Miller one from last year. So is there anybody else you could see being traded for? Is there any other position? I mean, it's hard to... We've talked about it before. It's hard to really trade because it's all just great players underperforming constantly. You're not going to trade and just yeah, well, think they're, they're going to slump they're forever. But they're all, I mean, there are some great players and there are some solid players. And like, it doesn't make sense to trade to upgrade a solid player because the upgrade's only big enough if it's like a great player. And one, there aren't that many of those available. And two, again, like what it would take to get one. I just, to me, the rotation is the only real possibility. Um, and I just I don't think it'll be anyone as big as Sonny Gray. And I know some Indians fans don't think Sonny Gray is big. So I don't think Tribe fans who are hoping for what feels like a big splash before the deadline, I don't think they're gonna get what they're hoping for. In Verba Schlebach in the comments, they say, I don't see the chemistry we had last year. It's because they're not winning. <laughs> I think if they won, there'd be a lot more chemistry. I think there already is plenty of chemistry. There's there's already a bunch of leaders on this team. It's I still don't buy into the fact that they're missing Mike Napoli all that much. The fact they didn't hit as well. They have a ton of leaders already. I don't think chemistry is a problem. If they do go on another big winning streak, I think it'll fix that whole problem. I do think the Kipnis thing from last week, I can't remember who the interview was with off the top of my head, 
But whoever was talking with Kipnis got him to open up way more than players do. Uh, that was Cleveland scene, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he to me the most notable thing was some stuff he said about Trevor Bauer. Um, but he also said that you know that guys like Giambi and Napoli, just because they were in terms of baseball players, almost felt like an earlier generation because in Major League Baseball, you know, a generation's not 20 years like it is in the rest of the life. You know, seven or eight years feels like a separate generation of players. And so it was a little, he said more, I don't remember his wording, but the gist of it was just sort of automatic to listen to those guys. Um, and he said I, it was himself, Kluber, and Brantley. I think the three of them were the guys Kipnis listed as sort of the team leaders. Um, and he said that they were kind of, getting a handle on how to pull off that. I don't think that's, I don't think Mike Napoli being gone is why the Indians are only four games above 500. I'm with you on that, but it was interesting to hear one of the Indians leaders say something about team leadership like that. Yeah. He said it was weird. Well, looking around and looking at him, Chisholm Hall and Kluber and thinking we're the old guys now. We're the, the leaders of all the young kids now, which yeah. is a good point. Right. Like Lindor is just a kid now. And you know, when again, like the age difference between them is not that big. But Kipnis has, you know, has been up an extra five years or whatever in, in baseball time. That's a lot. Yeah. All right, Jason, let's let's not worry about this trade deadline stuff and this winning things. Let's talk big, long, dong home runs. Because Abraham Almonte <laughs> hit the biggest one apparently ever in the lengthy stat cast era, which goes back to 2015. Uh, yesterday in the ninth inning when the Indians were down by, what was it, down by five <laughs> with two outs, Abraham Almonte decided just to casually crush a home run 505 feet. It went to the... Uh, section 147, if anybody's wondering, in the, the glorious Oakland A's Coliseum, whatever they call it now. Um, and it was yeah, 505 feet. It was the longest ever in the StatCast there. It narrowly beat out one that um, Giancarlo Stanton hit last year. It obviously beat anything Judge had this year. So it was a big home run. Matt Underwood called it as if he was falling asleep. Uh, I can't really blame him. It was The Indians were so far behind. It was just a home run. Who cares uh, with two outs? But... It was really fun to watch, and now apparently there's a conspiracy going around that StatCast might have glitched. It might not have been true, but I forced you to watch the highlight before the podcast just so you could see it. Um, whose side of this argument are you on? Is, is it real, or is the big, long Don fake? It didn't seem like 505 feet to me, but two thoughts on that. One, I absolutely think the stadium players are in impacts how impressive home runs seem. The Coliseum is massive. And while it's clear it was a long home run because it landed above and beyond a lot of seats, it was also, of course, nowhere near the back of the seats because the Coliseum just goes on and on and on. So I feel like a home run just doesn't look as dramatic and doesn't look as impressive there, whereas a small ballpark, you know, Wrigley, that same home run is literally out of the stadium and, like, you know, bouncing halfway down the next street. Uh, you know, so it looks farther. So I, I think part of why it doesn't look that long to me is just it allows the stadium for home runs to look good. The other thing is uh, StatCast is not the only entity that measures home runs. And I remember during at the All-Star break, I can't remember whose home run it was, but there was some home run that uh, ESPN has like their hit tracker and they measure home runs. And they had called something the longest home run of the year. And someone pointed out that the hit tracker and stat cast were like 40 feet apart on their estimates of the distance. And so I looked up Almonte's home run because you're, you're setting the stat cast number. Uh, but I looked up Almonte's home run on the ESPN hit tracker and they have it as 467 feet, which is still huge, but is a 38 foot difference. 
Um, my eye test, ESPN's 467 seems closer, but I'm also willing to admit my eye test is, you know, mostly nonsense. <laughs> I just think it's interesting that you have two different groups doing the same thing, coming up with numbers that are significantly apart. I wonder how ESPN feels about that, by the way, <laughs> that they had their home run tracker for all these years. And MLB's like, we're just going to do this. We're going to use lasers and you can't put things in the stadium, but we're going to do it. But I'm a believer. I think it was real. I think it was pretty close to that. Like you said, it's an op it's like an optical illusion how big the thing, the stadium looks. Because when, when people were saying like, "Oh, no way, it's not even close," like, do you see how high that ball is when he hits it? And it's not exactly coming straight down either. It's still in an angle, so it's going to travel a little bit further. I don't know. I think it was a really neat home run. Anyway, I wish it was either in a more meaningful time or if Tom Hamilton was calling it for his. For the one thing I love Tom Hamilton for is calling huge home runs. So I would have liked to hear him scream his head off at that one. But, but yeah, it is interesting. I was trying to look while you were <laughs> – I didn't realize you were looked it up. I thought you were just going to mention it. So I was trying to sneakily Google it. But, yeah, that's interesting. It's like 50 feet shorter than what what uh, StatCast had. Yeah, I don't I mean, know if it's more accurate. Yeah, even 467 is a huge number. And, if you know, if you wanted to split the difference, and that would put it at 486. I mean – Whatever your source is, it was a huge home run. The stack has number is nice because, you know, biggest in the era. Anything with a five at the front seems sort of mythic. Um, I feel like if we could somehow, like, get the best – I was going to say scientist. I don't think you really need – I don't know who you'd need. I feel like it would Ball be short scientists. five if we could know for sure. But – it, to me, again, it is just most interesting that the, the, the two different sources' numbers are so far apart. Yeah. Do, can we both who, agree that Babe Ruth... Do we believe anymore? <laughs> I'm, I'm leaning towards that cast, but I think either, either of them may be good. Have, has there ever been, like, looked into how accurate um, the home run... Because home run tracker has been around for a while. Has it ever been looked into how accurate it is? Or how no, they even do it? I mean, like, I don't know how you look into it. Like, yeah. Get short the of... Scientists. I guess like what you could, I mean, I feel like what you'd have to do is have players hitting balls in like an empty field where you could literally like pinpoint the spot and get a tape measure and measure it. But, you know, do all of that after StatCast and the home run tracker, the hit tracker have actually spat out their numbers and then just like see, you know, how far was it really before it hit the ground there? Um, but I don't anticipate that being done. I'm not the, I'm not a baseball scientist, but I always did imagine that like when they build a new stadium, they should measure out like how far a ball would go if it hit this seat. And like, I remember but, when but I was it, little. like you said, the ball was going to travel at least a little further because it's not coming straight down when it hits the seats. So like, even then, like, I don't think you can't really do that unless you're measuring to a point that's level with the ground, which once you get past the wall, they're, I don't think, you know, other than a bullpen here or there, there isn't anything that's, you know, level with the field once you get past the wall. Yeah, that's true. Because there was the the home run derby too, one where uh, it looked like the one was way shorter just because it fell short in the crowd, but it was basically a line drive compared to a ball that was coming straight down. So, right, home runs do a lot of weird things. I like that we have an accurate way to measure it, even if there's two separate accurate ones that are like forty feet off. That's way better than we used to have. Do you do you think at all that um, when I was looking this up, I've never cared about Herman distance before, but Babe Ruth has the longest one ever. In nineteen twelve, they said it was five hundred seventy five feet. Do you believe that even a little bit? No, but and, <laughs> and like you say, he has the longest one ever. That's like one list. I there are 
a dozen different home runs that are supposedly the longest ever. Like, I'm sure there's a list of supposed longest home runs ever ranging from like 560 feet to like 660 feet. Um, I think it's physically possible under the right conditions with the right wind, uh, you know, for someone to hit the ball 550 feet. Um, of all the players in baseball history that Babe Ruth, the most iconic home run hitter ever would have been the one to also like, to me that's just yeah it's just legend making like the longest home run ever was probably hit by a non-star player who was big and strong and happened to be the guy who hit the ball in the right place with the right wind on the right day i doubt babe ruth or mickey mantle hit the longest home run ever that's that's just the best story so like I said, I hope yeah exactly and for what it's worth abe didn't even hit that ball all that hard it was 109 miles per hour which by most standards, that's that's a hard hit ball, but that's one that goes into the dirt a lot or straight into a glove. So there was definitely a lot of wind playing in there, and he had like he must have had like a perfect launch angle and perfect wind. But it sucks that it came when the Indians were already down by a million from another bad Trevor Bauer start. So uh, I guess we'll start looking ahead now. Uh, the Indians do play more games on the West Coast. This is the last. It's the last of this trip. I'm hoping it's the last trip. I didn't look. I don't want to look ahead and see if I stay at the ten again anymore. Um, <laughs> but they do play the Giants coming up. The Indians, um, they're they're benching Carlos Santana tonight. I saw because they're in the stupid NL rules where batters hit or where pitchers hit. And um, so yeah, what are your feelings on the Giants, Jason? It's not a team we get to play very often or get to talk about a whole lot. Um, I like Buster Posey; he's neat. They used to be good. Madison Bumgarner rode a motorcycle, and now they're not. So every time the Indians play the Giants, I think of it as a chance to get revenge for the 1954 World <laughs> Series win. <laughs> Willie Mays and the Giants swept the Indians, and then the Indians didn't make a postseason for four decades. And then you had the Giants. Yes, the current players probably don't really care about that, but I do. Uh, aside from that, the Giants are terrible this year. <laughs> yeah, what the hell happened? They were supposed to be I, – I called this the battle of sadness because, I mean, our sadness is way less than the Giants. They are just in a pit of despair. But didn't at least one of us pick the Giants to win the West? Uh I did I'm not. Pretty sure I, I mean, there were five of us on the, the show. I, I guess it's <laughs> possible someone did. I'm I, almost positive I did because I wasn't even considering the Dodgers. But, but yeah, they looked like a World Series contender. They had obviously Bumgarner, they had Johnny Cueto, who's injured now. But I don't know. They're just a team that's straight awful. Matt Moore is one of the only pitchers with an ERA over six. The other one is Kevin Gossman. So they they have a whole bunch of pitching troubles. They can't hit. They can't score. So what I'm saying is they're probably going to sweep the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who are they sent? I think, yeah, Matt Cain, he, his story's sad, because I liked Matt Cain when he was good, and now he's just not good at all. Did you like, I don't know how to say like, but what's the word I'm looking for? Like, the in-between, were you okay with the Giants winning those World Series, all those ones that they won? Like, when they did the every other year thing, and then it collapsed last year. Uh, I was happy for them in 2010. Um, you know, the they hadn't won the World Series since beating the Indians in 1954, so they had had a long way to their own. Uh, so 2010, I was happy for them. 2012 was, that's fine. By 2014, <laughs> it was like, all right. right that's Except that they were playing the Royals, and I hated the Royals at that point. So I was definitely rooting for the Giants in 2014, but was also like, I don't need to see you win any more championships anytime soon. Just win it, but don't celebrate it in front of me, please. Just don't let the Royals yeah, win, I, but <laughs> keep it to I, yourself. I don't... I tend to, I, I end up with a, like a pro con opinion on most like great baseball players just because I watch enough baseball and 
the little kid part of me that can't just be neutral uh, kicks in. I don't like Madison Bumgarner for whatever reasons. Really? Um, so I was sort of like, ha, 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 you idiot when he hurt himself. Jeez. Cool. <laughs> wow. I was hurt, but it was just one of those, like, I You kind of deserved it because you were on a motorcycle in the middle of a baseball <laughs> season? But yeah, I mean, you made the stupid choice to do it, kid. I'm not going to feel bad for you. I mean, there's, uh, isn't it that some players yeah. aren't even allowed to, like, trampolines, let alone a dirt bike? Yeah. I'm I all mean, for letting players do things in the off days, but that's a little, you're kind of asking for it. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, to go from winning the World Series three times in five years, and obviously they're not the same team, but they've got a lot of the same key players. I didn't think they were going to win the division, but I also didn't think, again, they, don't have, the, they have the second worst record, but they have the worst run differential. So you can, you can make a sound argument that they've been the worst team in baseball. Uh, so hopefully the Indians fare better against them than it did across the bay in Oakland. It is worth noting tonight, it's Tomlin against Matt Moore, which is two pitchers who give up a ton of home runs. So maybe we'll see someone go into the river. Maybe yeah, not. Cool. <laughs> I don't believe it. It's not a river. I think that's... that's Whatever that's the, it is. is. Is that the ocean? Whatever. The water behind the stadium. impressive. You hit the ball in the San Francisco <laughs> Bay, and it looks like a huge home run. Like, Almonte's home run would have, you know, landed, splashed down in the water somewhere, and would have looked more massive than it looked in Oakland. Instead in Oakland, it just hits a dozen empty seats and bounces to another dozen empty seats. Exactly. <laughs> and the camera pans back and there's still more empty seats. <laughs> and it just zooms out to a satellite view and nobody's there. I mean, I know Indians fans shouldn't comment about empty stadiums, but it's always extra depressing in Oakland. There's just nobody. Like, you can hear, like, rattling in the stadium. And it was a little better because it was weekend coming back from an All-Star, but it's always amazing how empty that stadium is. And they also don't have a drum. When the Indians don't have anybody watching, at least they still have John Adams beating the drum, which is fun. Well, and the, it's a nice stadium. Like, even if Progressive's not full, at least it's a an attractive place for baseball to be played. The, the Oakland Coliseum is a dump and ugly and empty. Like, it's it's the, the triple crown of things that make <laughs> not a great place to play. If we were power-ranking stadiums, do you put that ahead of or behind Tropicana Field? Man, uh, I'd put it ahead just because at least it's outdoors. Like, <laughs> at least the garbage is outside. I'll go with the outdoor stadium. Yeah, Tropicana is awful. Um, so what else do we have? I think we got one question this week. We didn't get to through the throughout talking just random questions. This one's kind of weird and came out of nowhere. Uh, Tim Margagel on Facebook. He wanted to know, why does everyone love Tito? We never hit and run, seldom bunt, and seldom steal. The other pitchers know they can throw whatever pitch they want because of this. This leaves hitters out at a disadvantage. Our batting order is screwed up because our best hitter is batting fifth in the lineup. Don't understand the love affair with Tito. Another year, we should win the World Series, but we have another manager like Mark, Mike Hargrove who should go down in history as one of the worst managers ever. All that talent and no World Series wins. There's a lot to unpack here, Jason. <laughs> Where do you want to start? Why do you love Tito so much, you jerk? Well, Tim, you and I view baseball pretty differently. Uh, I have no idea how much the Indians hit and run compared to the average team, so I won't comment on that. Uh, relative to other teams, the Indians don't really sell dumb bunt. They're somewhere near the middle of the pack, and even that is probably more than they should. And seldom steal, they're, I looked this one up, they're right in the middle of the American League for stolen bases. Um, so this is one of those... Someone's angry and asks a question, but <laughs> their question is built on premises that they don't actually 
know are true or not. This is a completely gut question by Tim. Uh, everyone loves Tito because the Indians have had their best stretch of baseball this century while he's been the manager. Uh, and generally speaking, when a team plays well, fans are going to like the manager. So I don't think it's too complicated. Um, I mean, you could point to other things, you know, like his scooter and uh, things that make him seem like a fun manager. If the Indians were had been terrible for the last four years, no one would find that stuff charming, I don't think. Uh, but the Indians have mostly won. They've had a winning record every year other him. Uh, it's not rocket science why people like him. We've sort of talked about this before, but there's no amount of collapse, even at this point, that can get him fired over this year, I don't think. No. Absolutely. Even if they're like leading when the last week and then they collapse, there's nothing. No. Maybe not even next year. I, I'd imagine he's here for the window as long as his health holds up. Until the Indians rebuild and maybe they find some way that he has to get out or he just retires because he's had the health issues. I think Tito's going to yeah. stick around, and I'm glad for that. Yep. I, I feel like if the Indians win the World Series, I could see him potentially deciding like to go out on that. Otherwise, I think he stays through sort of whatever feels like him to be this cycle. Uh, and then retires, you know, when sort of this core isn't the team's core anymore. Yeah, that, that'd be, that's what I think it, it would be. That'd be kind of weird managing, I think, for several cycles of a core. Because when you're managing one team, and I guess maybe to Tito, this is not his first core of great players. You have the Red Sox, obviously. But that's kind of a weird thing, jumping from group to group and readjusting and everything. Because it's not like a sudden thing. Here's a new group of players. It's gradual and just evolves over time. And Yeah, I mean, I think back to like you know, a long time ago in baseball history, like Connie Mack was the A's manager for, I don't even know. I mean, like literally decades. I mean, he, he, he was around long enough to, to manage like 7,000 baseball games. Uh, I mean, he literally, you know, I mean, he managed players who weren't born when he started managing the team. He might've managed players whose parents weren't born when he started managing the team. Like, it's crazy. And John McGraw with the Giants is similar. Uh, it's weird. I mean, it, I feel like it's pretty rare. I bet around Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL, off the top of my head, I would guess there are like maybe a dozen coaches out of 90-some teams in those three leagues who have been with their team for a decade. It's like Bill Belichick with the Patriots, uh, Popovich with the Spurs, Mike Sosha with the Angels. I think I'm pretty sure those are the longest tenured in each of the sports. And I don't think any sport has more than like two or the three other guys who have been around for 10 years with their team. How long has Bruce Bochy been in San Francisco? Uh, he might be longer than Sosha. Probably. No, not longer than Sosha because he no. was with the, the Padres for a while before that. Oh, that's right, yeah. um, but he, he's probably like the second most tenured major league manager at this point. Um, and however long he has been with them is enough to feel like a long, long time. Uh, but yeah, it just doesn't happen that much. And the, so the comment about Mike Hargrove that, um, Tim made, first of all, I don't know, is that I was a six, seven year old when he was managing. So is that true? Do you think that he was one of the worst managers in history, all that talent and no world series wins? No, I don't think that was the case. And I think, you know, like most managers, at some point the team doesn't win quite enough. The team, you know, any team that doesn't win the World Series at some point feels like not enough. And then in hindsight, a certain segment of people are just going to feel like they were miserable at their job. But that was never my sense of Hargrove. Uh, I don't think that was like the consensus impression of him either. 
And that reminds me of the something we forgot to even talk about or mention is that you got to review the the dynasty that almost was. The rest of us got to watch it on time. Um, so what do you think of that? That was kind of neat. I know it's probably different perspectives for the both of us because I only have vague memories of the '90s Indians and the tail end of Kenny Lofton being there. But you were there for the whole thing, most of it, crying in the shower at the end. <laughs> I was there. I didn't know like how dramatic the Jose Mesa stuff was between him and Omar Vizquel. So that was kind of neat to learn. Um, just a whole bunch of stuff. I think no matter how old you were during that time i imagine if you were like in your 50s at this time it's just kind of neat to relive it so soon if you were probably your age i bet it's really nostalgic being from back then um so what do you think of it i thought it was really well done um i feel like on some level it was best for someone who doesn't remember that stuff very well and doesn't know very well because it it did a good job of packing a lot of information you know into like a 70 minute running time without feeling like it was rushing or cramming. Um, so I thought it was really informative, you know, for someone like me who knew all of that, um, there wasn't like a whole lot of information I learned that I didn't, wasn't already aware of. Um, to me, what was really cool was there was a lot of just like random footage of young Manny Ramirez, you know, hitting the ball and, you know, young Jim Tomei talking about stuff and, um, so there was footage in it that I'd never seen before, despite having been a big fan then and, you know, having followed the team closely for decades. Um, so I do feel like there was something for everyone. It was well done. Uh, you know, I said when I wrote about it, I feel like if you did live through it, uh, how much you're going to enjoy it depends on whether the mostly good stuff will outweigh the few really, really bad things or whether those few really, really bad things are going to sort of ruin your ability to enjoy the good stuff. I mean, the, the Game 7 of the 97 World Series was just terrible. And Game 7 of last year's World Series was just terrible. Like, and then the unfortunate thing is with the Cubs winning that one, we're going to be seeing stuff about last year's Game 7 forever, where the Indians are just like the also-rans who, who lost so that the Cubs could fulfill their destiny or whatever. And it's going to be so much worse because we're in 2017, where there's it was recorded at several angles. There were a bunch of pictures. There's social media. It's... We're never going to forget it. Unless, even if they win a World Series, you're never going to forget the that image of Michael Martinez coming off the field with the Cubs all cheering behind him. It was a really good shot, unfortunately. But but I do think if the Indians win the World Series... We won't I care. We'll still see it. Yeah, exactly. It was all just like part of the, you know, it'll be that much sweeter, which sort of be the, the cliche of it is, you know, you'll remember how hard it was, but now that you've got the satisfaction of winning, you can sort of like smile back on the years when it was so close. Yeah. Uh, but until then... Game seven sucked. <laughs> On that note, Jason, I think it's pretty much all we have. Um, the Indians are probably playing right now. Yeah, they're playing right now if you're listening live. If not, they've either won and or lost a few hours ago. At least I hope, unless it's like in the 23rd inning. Uh, so, Brian, what's coming up for you? Or, Brian? Jason, <laughs> what's coming up for you this I'm week? I'm the middle name, so we can just play it off that you're using the middle <laughs> there name. There you go, see? Uh, well, one, before doing anything else, I looked it up. Uh, Mike Sosha is, in fact, the longest tenured manager by far. Uh, he's been managing the Angels since the year 2000. Uh, Bruce Bochy is the National League's most tenured for, with his one team. He's been with the Giants, uh, managing them since 2007. Those are the only two managers in Major League Baseball who were with their team before 2010. So hmm. 28 other teams have had at least one new manager this decade. If I'm going to take a shot in the dark, I'm going to guess that they kind of seem to last longer in football because a head coach is so much of the team's identity, but in baseball, you can swap them out mostly pretty easily. 
I would assume. Because, like, if it's a football coach, they're, the whole team is the them. NFL has, like, cycles, though, where, like, teams don't win and they get rid of their coaches. I'm sure there are more than two coaches in the NFL who have been with their team since before this decade started. But I, I bet, I still would guess Belichick is one of only, like, three or four who's been with his team more than, like, a dozen years. I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to spend my time looking up football stuff, but... <laughs> I'm assuming the extreme uh, length, but I think a lot more lasts longer in the NFL, just as a guess. Just because it's so much harder to replace them. Than, uh, but yeah, not much else coming up for me. Uh, I don't know. I'm getting I'm getting to the point where with a baby who's going to wake up in the middle of the night, the idea of staying up till midnight to watch a baseball <laughs> game and then potentially be woken up an hour after I go to bed, most likely I'll just be watching the early innings uh, this year. So I'm looking forward to the Indians getting back to Eastern time. You've got the nice recaps that MLB has. They're so buried on their site, but like the MLB.com recaps are some of my favorites. Because they're just really straightforward. It's just the plays. Some guy announces what happens occasionally and you hear radio over radio broadcast. That's like my favorite way to catch up on games. Anyway. I don't know anything either. It's just another week, more work and more writing. And if you're listening now and haven't listened to the, the prospect chat, because this time of year there's a lot of stuff about prospects. On Thursday, me and Brian will be doing that, as always, at 9. That's about it. Everyone, we'll talk to you next week. And Jason, I'll talk to you, too. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies, like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.